Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Bob Brooksmith, President and CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association. Bob has more than 35 years of experience in the mortgage industry, including serving as President and Chief Operating Officer at Treliant, where he headed the mortgage litigation support practice. He's also held senior leadership positions with Chevy Chase Bank and Prudential Home Mortgage, among others. Today, he heads the MBA, and he's joined me to talk about the state of the mortgage industry going into 2023. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me on. Oh, we're so excited to have you on, especially as we start a new year and hopefully a better one for the mortgage industry. Let's start off talking about some of the challenges and the expectations that MBA has this year as far as volume and, and what you forecasted. Sure. Well, as you rightly say, there are a lot of challenges that the industry continues to face as we enter 2023. Not least among them is that we believe there will be a short and shallow recession in 2023. We think in the first half of the year, and and when I say shallow, I mean probably a negative GDP of 1% or less. So mild, but nonetheless notable. And unemployment, which has been a bright spot, will increase as we continue to see layoff notices in, in a lot of sectors around the country. We think it could get as high as five and a half percent by the end of next year from about three seven now. So that if we if, if we're right and GDP is essentially flat in uh, 2023 as a whole, that'll be two consecutive years of basically no growth. So pretty, pretty strong headwinds in a macroeconomic sense. That really is. And, you know, the unemployment has been especially felt in the housing industry and in, you know, mortgage lenders in particular. So what do you think we're going to end the year out there? Well, Mike Frantantoni, our chief economist, thinks that from peak to trough in mortgage uh, employment, there'll be a 25 to 30 percent drop. And so perhaps we're halfway there now with uh, job cuts that have already happened in our industry, but we do foresee that they will continue until the capacity and the demand are more in line. What, how does that compare to the past? What other year would you compare this to? There are a lot of things in a, in a positive way that are different uh, for this downturn than previous ones, not the least of which is that we enter this period with historically low delinquencies. We are essentially at a 40-year low in delinquencies. And of course, employment, as I just mentioned, is still very strong. So we did not, we're not coming into this downturn based on a lot of speculation in real estate, which we certainly were heading into the uh, financial crisis. And we also have much, much stronger underwriting um, guidelines and, of course, the ability to repay law, which maybe some of us at the time and during the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010 when that was passed, maybe some of us were not thrilled with it, but I think it's been an unequivocally positive thing for the industry and for our economy writ large to say that nobody's making mortgages unless you can show that the borrower can afford it. And that's going to stand us in really good stead as we go through these rough waters. 
you know, anytime there is a housing recession or or a downturn in housing, people look back towards 2008. There's so much collective trauma from 2008, um, even among, I would say, especially among mortgage people, right? I mean, no one wants that back again. But this one looks so different than that. First of all, this is not a financial crisis in any way caused by housing. Um, you know, it's just that we're, we're caught up in it. But the biggest difference between now and 2008 is those lending standards and just the quality of loans that are now being done. Yes. And I think, uh, so I talked a little bit about the ability to repay, but also the products. And, and if you think about what drives home values in this country, of course, it's a supply and demand game. And you have so many borrowers who had the good fortune to lock in long-term fixed rate mortgages, whether through purchasing a home in the last couple of years or refinancing in the 3% range, you have a whole lot of uh, home buyers who will not be forced to sell. Remember in the, in the financial crisis, maybe you had an arm that was adjusting to a level that you couldn't afford, or um, maybe you uh, bought a house and then bought another on the side and rented it out. And then your tenant didn't keep paying the rent and it was no longer cash flowing positively. And you said, well, geez, I'm going to sell that house. So there was all of these things that were causing the inventory to rise and really putting downward pressure on home prices. And that's another thing we don't have uh, this time. And even the typical reasons that somebody might choose to sell a house, like I've got a new job and I'm being relocated to Cincinnati, even at that, so many jobs can be done remotely now that, that that is a much smaller factor. So there really are some fundamentally different things as we continue through this downturn that are going to insulate the housing economy and the broader economy from, from damage. I love that. Let's talk about mortgage rates because obviously this is the key um, for so much of our uh, the mortgage industry business, right? So I, I know that your forecast for the MBA forecast sees it, you know, the first part of the year not going to be great, but definitely see some um, decreases in mortgage rates towards the end of the year. Yeah. And, and let me take this opportunity to remind uh, our listeners who follow this pretty closely. So probably already know that we are already 50 or 60 basis points off the peak uh, in interest rates. It's a story that doesn't get a lot of, press, and one could be cynical and say, well, that's because it's not bad news. But uh, remember that interest rates did go up above 7% briefly for 30-year fixed, and, and they've come back down quite considerably. But but we think that uh, the markets have built in all of the, uh, of course, existing and then planned Fed increases, knowing, of course, that the Fed controls the short end of the market and not the long end of the market. And we think that by the end of 2023, we'll be back down in about the 5.2% range for interest rates on 30-year fixed rate mortgages. And one of the other keys there is that you've seen a really uh, extended period where the the spread between the 10-year treasury and the 30-year fixed rate mortgage has been about as wide as it's ever been. And so even if the Treasury stayed about the same. As that spread between Treasuries and mortgages normalized, you're going to see a reduction in the interest rates. So we continue to believe that there'll be some volatility in the market, and there are certainly signs of illiquidity on mortgage-backed securities as the Fed has gone from being a huge buyer, vacuuming up MBSs to um, a net not 
seller per se, but letting letting its holdings run off and not replenish them. Um, and with some depository institutions um, fall up on their mortgage allocation and deposits starting to run off, there definitely is a liquidity issue in the market, and that has contributed to that higher spread. But if you look at any graph of the 10-year treasury versus the 30-year fixed, I think the smart money says it will normalize sooner or later, and that will that will provide additional downward pressure on, on mortgage rates. Really important thing to consider there. You already talked about some of the headwinds when we look at, you know, it's going to be a, a thin year, maybe. Um, let's talk specifically about mortgage originations, you know, what the volume looks like this year, um, compare that to last year. Yes, we think that 2023 will end up around $1.9 trillion in originations, which is about a 15% drop from what we think will end up uh, at about two and a quarter trillion for 2022. And that you know, in a vacuum, that doesn't sound like the end of the world. It's just that we're coming off a $4 trillion year and a $4.4 trillion year. And, of course, despite everybody's best efforts to staff up in ways that were flexible as opposed to hiring, you know, a lot of full-time permanent employees, of course you can't do $4 trillion or $4.4 trillion without adding headcount in addition to some of your flexible ways to increase your capacity. And that's what's taking a while to bring out of the system. You know, one of the things that was so challenging about 2022 is you had home price growth go up so fast. And then you had, you know, rates go up so fast, but we didn't see home price growth really fall as much as a lot of people thought it would. So where do you see home price growth or decline um, in 2023? And is that going to help affordability when you think we still have you know, we're still in the sixes right now for uh, mortgages. Yeah. Um, we think that home prices, generally speaking, will be flat in 2023. Now, you and and our listeners have all read about markets that were just not, not just hot, but on fire and in an unsustainable way. And you've already started to see a couple of those markets um, have year-over-year drops in home values. We do not expect a national drop in home prices, or if we do see one, it'll be maybe 1% or so. And I'll go back to some earlier comments about uh, supply still being constrained. You have a lot of um, owners who do not have to sell and therefore won't. And even if somebody is perhaps interested in a little more space, maybe having another child or something like that, I think you're going to see a lot more people hang on to their 3% mortgage and blow out the kitchen and add a family room and, you know, perhaps take advantage of some of the record levels of pent-up equity that home buyers or homeowners have in this country and get a home equity line of credit. I, I really think that's a an opportunity for lenders. So I do think that's a, a silver lining in this very difficult market environment. Absolutely. We've talked about how it's sort of a mortgage rate lockdown, right? Because, I mean, unless you're compelled for some reason, you're probably not going to give up that really nice rate to go and, and get a, a higher rate um, when you don't when you haven't seen prices fall really to make that to offset the affordability. But as you mentioned, you know, there are always buyers. Well, right. And the other thing, remember how frequently uh, would be buyers were coming up against 12 other offers or 15 other offers or whatever it was, uh, it only takes one offer to sell a house 
and there are a lot of people who missed out. Now, there are certainly some people who missed out, and based on today's interest rates, just have to wait, right? I mean, they just they either have to <laughs> make more money or, um, or rates have to come down. But there's a sizable chunk of people who could afford a new home, and we're bidding on them, uh, you know, in the last six, six or nine months. Let's switch now to talk about policy initiatives that the MBA has. And, you know, front and center of that is the mortgage insurance premium cut that you're looking for, that you support for um, FHA. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That has been pretty controversial. It always is. Um, And, you know, there are people like the MBA that says, hey, this is a great way to increase affordability. You have other people who are like, ah, this is a safety issue. So why? Tell me why MBA thinks that this is the right time to do that. Well, I'll. I'll go one step farther and say a year ago would have been the right time to do it. We we were very vocal in November of, of 2021 when the actuarial report came out and showed a very significant cushion over the uh, statutory 2% uh, minimum capital in the mutual mortgage insurance fund that, that pays claims for FHA loans. And we, we actively advocated for a cut then and it didn't happen. And I don't think the reason that it failed to occur was because it wasn't a good idea. I think it was because we didn't have a confirmed FHA secretary and Julia Gordon, who's in the position now, FHA commissioner, I should say, um, had a very long confirmation process. She, she had a tie vote out of the Senate and that took, I think it was 11 months from nomination to confirmation. And that single fact really delayed an MIP cut when, frankly, I believe it should have happened in November of 21. So here we are. She is in place. She actively supports an MIP cut. There is uh, some congressional um, timetable at play where until there was an omnibus that funded the government for the full fiscal year, They had some handcuffs on them at HUD about what they could do about this. That finally passed, as you remember, uh, leading up to the holidays. And so here we are in January, and I expect that HUD in the very near term, I don't know if that's days or weeks, but I hope not months, will announce some relief for FHA borrowers because effectively what we're doing by not cutting the mortgage insurance premium is we are overcharging the people that we care most about getting into home ownership, low and moderate income home buyers, minority home buyers, first time home buyers. The, the group that FHA serves so well is effectively being overcharged by not having an MIP cut. So while I am very sympathetic to risk management concerns, when you have a statutory minimum capital of 2%, and just to remind our listeners, that is all expected losses are paid for plus a 2% cushion, right? So in other words, it says your, your projections are wrong, your losses are going to be 2% worse. They've got that, but then they have 9.1% over it. There's an 11.11% surplus, which is... Um, you know, five times what it needs to be, and what it needs to be is already 2% over what they expect it to be. So it's, there's, I, don't, I just don't think there's any credible argument that says there should not be a cut to the MIP, and it's been a lot of, unfortunately, um, Washington bureau, bureaucratic uh, administrative 
steps that need to happen, um, but I do think we're on the cusp of it. That's interesting that you think that's uh, about to happen. We'll definitely be looking for that uh, and and see what happens. You know, you do have a lot of people who are like, last year would have been great. We've had, you know, when things are going good, coming into a recession year, it's kind of a hard a hard argument to make because things could, could go south this year for, for FHA borrowers in a way that, you know, wasn't the case last year. Yeah, I um, the, the home price appreciation that we talked about earlier has rendered an awful large portion of FHA loans to be to have LTVs way below uh, 97, right? I mean, so if if you took a if you had a 97% loan and then your house value went up 30%, geez, I mean, you wouldn't even need MI anymore, right? In the conventional sense, so. Um, of course, all of that is taken into consideration when the actuarial report is done for the mutual mortgage insurance fund, and that was just announced in November. So we're not saying the world has changed dramatically from when those numbers came out. And um, and frankly, if you look at FHA's book for what's been on the books a while versus what they'll originate in 2023, it's not that large a percentage. And the um, the imperative is still there to make it easier for those borrowers. Yes, on the margins, this is not going to take somebody who couldn't qualify and make them qualify, but it'll be meaningful monthly savings at a time when, uh, with higher interest rates and higher home prices, these these home buyers really need the help. Great points there. You know, one of the things that we keep an eye on is the cost to originate a loan. And obviously that's, you know, we get that from your data. Tell us where we are. How how much does it cost to originate a loan right now at the beginning of 2023? And how does that compare to, you know, what, what it has been historically? Uh, way too high. <laughs> <laughs> I think right. the last number I saw from from Mike Frantoni's group was $10,900. And it's really a source of constant frustration for our members that they have taken so many steps to introduce automation into the process, and yet the cost to originate remains stubbornly high. And yes, we all know that loan officer compensation is a significant part of that, and as the average loan amount goes up, of course, the portion that is tied to commission, which is tied to loan amount, will continue to rise. But the frustrating part has been that the other components of the cost to originate, which you would think technology would bring down, really have stubbornly stayed high. And of course, you talk to any lender and they will tell you about the cost of compliance. We have far too many checkers checking the checkers to ensure that for instance, from a TRID standpoint, everything is perfect. And if you're trying to sell loans, um, perhaps through some uh, private label mortgage-backed security executions, you know those loans are going to be due diligence over and over. And it just seems like there are so many places along the manufacturing process 
where people are redoing things. They really are. I remember um, I joined Housing Wire in 2013, and in 2014 we had a you know a series of um, articles about how high uh, the cost to originate was, and we were you know so we said something like you know it was ridiculous, and then it was like okay it came out higher the next month. We're like okay uh, more ridiculous. Like what are the superlatives that we can get to? That like this just isn't crazy. Same thing happened in 2018, right? And so and so here we are, and that leads me to my next point, which is. You know, earlier this year, I'm sorry, in 2022, not not used to 2023 yet, in April of 2022, you had the CFPB talk about, you know, that they were going to start to invoke this authority they have to examine non-bank companies. Um, and I think that that sent a lot of um, questions and maybe some, you know, uh, uncomfortableness throughout the mortgage industry to be like, wait a second, you, you're saying you're going to come back in and do more. And I know that it was not aimed specifically at mortgage. It was a, a range of fintech companies that um, deal with consumer finances, but mortgage is in there and IMBs are in there. Um, what has been the uh, MBA's reaction to that and, and how are you working with them? Well, I guess I would, I would zoom out a little bit and, and comment more broadly on the CFPB's very expansive view of what it has the um, the right and the obligation to review and enforce. And of course, IMBs are subject to CFPB supervision, and they have been, and they do it vigorously. And I and our members, I, I just talked about cost of compliance. Our members very seriously take the responsibility to um, do right by the consumer and follow all the consumer rules. What we object to is when there are enforcement actions that focus on footfalls that do not have consumer harm or for which the consumer harm was very limited and had already been remediated and then brought to the Bureau's attention. And then the company is shamed with a blistering uh, press release and uh, it, it just is provides no encouragement for good lenders and servicers to do the right thing. And then when they find a mistake, come forward and say, here's the mistake and here's what we've done to fix it. And I think that's, I think that's an improper way to regulate. And there are also, um, it seems as though Director Chopra is always finding, I mean, even, even some of the phrases he uses, like dormant authority, and I forget what the other one was, but it, 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 he's even admitting that, that you know, well, I dredged this out of somewhere, and so, some interpretation says that maybe I've got jurisdiction over this. And, and we think it's harmful, for instance, when, um, when servicers have done such a great job through the pandemic and, and putting borrowers into forbearance and showing such flexibility and saving so many people from a period of, of interruption and in income due to COVID. And the narrative is that the servicers perhaps have not done such a great job, which we strongly disagree with. We think that that discourages consumers from being in touch with their servicers, which is the most important thing when they hit a rough patch. I, I think that many people share your, uh, you know, loathing of the regulation by enforcement, right? Instead of having clear rules. And we know that that, you know, that has a pretty long legacy at the CFPB since its founding when, you know, um, some of the first directors felt like the only way to 
do regulation right was to do it that way as opposed to clear rules that people would then seek to get around. So I can understand that the regulation by enforcement is not popular. Yeah. And, you know, rulemaking is a long and arduous process, but it is by design because you're compelled to get input from a broad uh, variety of sources and then respond to the input and incorporate that into the rule. And the benefit of rulemaking, of course, is that it's very durable. You can only change it through another rulemaking, which is long and arduous. So I think that this bureau is much more apt to give, you know, guidance, uh, handbook updates and things like that. They don't don't go through the Administrative Procedures Act, and they claim that makes it clear what they're asking their regulated entities to do, but it also conveniently bypasses the Administrative Procedures Act, which we think is inappropriate. You know, another regulatory issue that the MBA is very active on is, is the CRA requirements. And those, you know, the fact that regulators are like, yeah, you know, IMBs need to to have CRA and it's like, but they're not depositories. They're, how, how do you do that? How does that even work? Can you tell us a little bit about how the MBA sees that and what you guys are doing? Yeah, I think this is perhaps one of the nuttiest proposals I've seen in my over four years as head of the MBA. The Community Reinvestment Act is there to ensure that depository institutions who take deposits from a community then reinvest them in the community by making loans. The idea is that you can't just hollow out a community's capital and then go and lend it somewhere else. That's perfectly logical, and it works in a depository context. If you're an IMB and you do not take any deposits, you have nothing to reinvest, right? So the the whole notion of a Community Reinvestment Act requirement for IMBs is based on a fallacy because there is no deposit to reinvest. And, of course, there's also no federal deposit insurance, which is a benefit conferred on depositories. Yes, they pay for it, but it is a benefit that helps them attract those deposits. So instead, IMBs uh, partner with depositories who are warehouse lenders to them and then, of course, sell the loans onto the secondary market and then recycle that uh, capital and make more loans. Furthermore, so, okay, first of all, it's a faulty premise, right? There's no deposits to reinvest. Furthermore, for several years, and we've put out these statistics, independent mortgage banks, non-depository lenders, do a much higher percentage of lending, mortgage lending in this country to low and moderate income borrowers and minority borrowers and first-time home buyers. The very people that a CRA-like requirement would benefit are already being served disproportionately by IMBs. So first of all, it's a solution in search of a problem because IMBs are already making these kinds of loans. And secondly, it's nonsensical because there's nothing to reinvest. There are no deposits that have been taken to then be reinvested in the community. So as you can tell, I feel kind of strongly about this one. It's hard to figure out how that would be enforced, but we know that we have states now that are taking. So even if if we're not saying it from the federal um, government part, we have states, I believe it was um, Illinois in December, right? And then we have other, you know, Oftentimes we have uh, California and New York trying to outdo each other on the on the state regulatory level. What do you see? Do you think that's going to continue? Well, we have had Massachusetts with a CRA-like requirement for quite a few years now. And you're correct that Illinois has promulgated a rule as well. 
um, we are working actually closely with Illinois on its implementation of those rules, as well as in New York, because while we engage when we can, uh, the Illinois law passed extremely quickly and with a bundle of other things that we, that really prevented uh, substantive engagement in the legislation, but we've been very engaged in the implementation and trying to encourage states that do, in my view, um, wrongheadedly pass laws like this to have sensible implementation where if the HUMDA data shows that the lender in question is lending at at least the average rate uh, to these um, these borrowers we all care about, that they be deemed compliant with the regulation. In other words, if you're going to have this thing at the state level, at least take the HUMDA data and spend any examination or enforcement energy on lenders that are performing well below the average. So those are the sort of steps we take. We, we vigorously um, oppose it when we uh, get wind of it in the legislative process, and then we work very closely with the state regulators and say, here's how we think it would make sense to implement this in a way that doesn't just increase costs even more on consumers, but actually has the result that we think that the legislators intended in terms of focusing lenders on these communities. In fact, um, the MBA, you have two initiatives uh, very, very closely focused on that. Um, let's see, building generational wealth through home ownership and home for all, uh, both of those initiatives. Tell me about that and, and what you hope to accomplish there. Yes, and, and we are part of a, a broader initiative through the National Housing Conference as well to increase black home ownership. And we really are heartened that we had good news. Again, this doesn't get much press because it's not bad news, but um, the, the black home ownership rate is actually up two percentage points from 42 to 44, and the Hispanic home ownership rate is up two and a half points from 48.1 to 50.6. And so we are starting to see the, the needle move a little. And yes, of course, that was helped along through the tailwinds of, of low interest rates. But we also know that the initiatives that the GSEs are taking and that our members are taking to focus on uh, education and down payment assistance programs and really try to get at the root of what is preventing or historically has prevented black and Hispanic um, citizens from owning homes at the rates that white people do and developing all sorts of programs and initiatives to reduce those barriers and focus on that part of the market, um, both because it's the right thing to do, but very importantly, because it makes really good business sense. We're in an increasingly diverse country, and you can't be successful in the long run if you don't focus on those segments in the market. How many uh, member companies have signed up to uh, you know, pledge their support to some of these initiatives? Uh, the Home for All pledge, I think we have about 400 member companies that have signed that, and that ranges from, you know, just as our membership does, from very small uh, regionally-based originators all the way up to, I believe I'm correct in saying that uh, all 39 of our board members' companies have signed the pledge, and that that'll take you all the way up to Money Center Bank. So really broad adoption of that, and and intentionally 
um, very broad ways in which people can meet that pledge. We're not trying to be prescriptive. We're just trying to get the, the commitment from the top that they will focus on these kinds of lending issues so that we can get a much, uh, much more equitable home ownership to black and Hispanic um, citizens of this country. I think one of the things that you guys have done is really um, try to educate around special purpose credit programs. Um, and we just reported this week that Rocket Mortgage uh, launched a program uh, that gives $7,500 in credits um, as a special purpose credit program. So that's encouraging to see that actually happen. We know that there's been some challenges with that program. Yes, we special purpose credit programs have been around for a very long time, but they effectively weren't used by anyone because it wasn't clear that trying to attract a certain type of borrower through a special purpose credit program would not have a lender run afoul of the Fair Housing Act. So we with the National Fair Housing Alliance went to HUD and wrote a letter and asked for a legal opinion saying, if a lender were to engage in a special purpose credit program, can you tell us that that would not be a Fair Housing Act violation? So that took a few months, but we got that um we got that opinion from HUD, and that's what really has unstuck this. And, and Fannie and Freddie are both in various stages of testing and implementing special purpose credit programs that will eventually be able to be used widely across our membership. And you mentioned Rocket and J.P. Morgan Chase certainly was one of the first to come out with one. There are several other lenders that have these programs that are targeting um, borrowers who could benefit from them. And I'm really optimistic about this as another uh, tool to use to really make some more progress. And, uh, and I'll repeat that I'm heartened by the progress we made last year and saw really significant positive moves in both the black and Hispanic home ownership rates. Agree that if you hadn't gotten that assurance uh, from the, you know, the federal regulators, there's no way that somebody is going to touch this. So what a great thing to, to do that, to spur something that is, um, you know, I know so many of the lenders that I talk to, they're very interested in, they really want to do. And, you know, they just felt held back from understandably. Right. It's one of those situations where the um, the government was effectively giving you contradictory instructions. It was saying, you know, you really ought to focus on on lending to minority borrowers. But if you do, you could have a huge compliance and legal problem. So I was pleased we were able to clear that um, clear that roadblock. And I think we're going to really see the uptake on special purpose credit programs uh, grow in 2023 and beyond. What are some of your priorities um, as this Congress comes in? Um, what do you, What is MBA hoping to do for your members this year? Well, I'll tell you that, or I'll tell our listeners that we are talking on the third day of the Republican Party trying to <laughs> trying to get a speaker. So I do think that in any case, let's say that the Republicans were more functional than they seem to be, and um, even even if they were. You have such a narrow majority in the House, and of course the Senate is uh, on a razor edge, but with Democrats in control. You saw how difficult it was to get any legislation done in the last Congress and having to rely on reconciliation, which won't be an option with the the House in Republican hands this um, term. 
So my short answer is very little is going to get done legislatively in the next two years. And we will continue to look for uh, legislation that will pass because even in a even in a term when very little gets done, something gets done, right? You have to pass the budget. You're going to have to pass a debt ceiling increase at some point. That'll be very contentious. And you have to pass the defense authorization and the farm bills due up. And so, for instance, you might say, well, what, what on earth difference does that make? The USDA rural housing program is in the agriculture department, so that actually does matter for the farm bill. So there will be very narrow opportunities to get things done uh, in this term, and we will be opportunistic in trying to insert things that are important to our industry in some of those must-pass vehicles. That's. I think your um, summary there was just perfect. <laughs> Not like no matter who you are, no matter what you're advocating for, it's hard to see how much is going to get done in the next two years. Just more gridlock. Um, so you know you're doing God's work there to even try. Um, I wanted to end with open stores. This is uh, one of the NBA initiatives that I am just um, that I just really love and have always tried uh, to support in the ways that we can because it's such a it's such a big deal. So. Um, Open stores. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what it is. If someone somehow has been under a rock, doesn't know what this charitable initiative does. Yes, MBA uh, Open Stores Foundation was founded about ten years ago now, and it is a charity uh, where a hundred cents on the dollar of your donations go directly to the recipients. MBA underwrites every cent of the operating cost of this foundation. And what it does is we have 13 or 14 hospitals around the country, children's hospitals, with whom we affiliate. We work with the social workers there, and they identify families who can benefit from a month's payment of their mortgage or their rent so that they can be with their child while they're in the hospital. And it's it's a time when families need help the most, and I love the tie-in with what we do every day to make mortgages and on our multifamily side to provide safe and decent, affordable rental housing. And then we say, when you have this unpredictable bump in the road with the, with the sickness of a, of a child, we really don't want you to have to choose between showing up at work or taking unpaid leave. We want you to be able to be, up, be with your child and not worry about the mortgage payment or the rent payment being made. So that's what we do. We are, as I said, in, in 13 or 14 hospitals now. And last August, we surpassed 10,000 families helped with mortgage or rental assistance. And we have, in our in our 10 years, we've helped people from all 50 states and Guam and the District of Columbia, and we've raised over $17 million. And it's just been one of the more joyful parts of my affiliation with MBA and, of course, being on the board of, of ODF um, to see how our industry has responded to this cause. We have corporate and individual sponsors and givers all over the country, and it's really extremely gratifying to be a part of it. 
You know, at every MBA conference, there are opportunities, uh, you know, for people to give. And of course, they can give all the time um, online. But it really is, to me, one of the uh, most beautiful things that the housing community does. And we know that so many of, um, you know, mortgage loan officers and uh, lenders of all types are, are the ones who are so plugged into the community and do so many things uh, to support the community uh, charitably. But this is such a, a great thing to see it just on a national basis. And like you said, um, having some of those costs underwritten, all of the all of the costs underwritten by MBA, so all of the money can go straight to a charity. So definitely wanted to to end on that note. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you, Bob, is it's been a rough year. We're we're looking at another year that's um, going to be hopefully better, but still not not easy. What is it that makes you optimistic as you look at twenty twenty three? Well, I guess I'll go back to some themes I've talked about before and how it's really wrenching to. Uh, have the industry go through this contraction, but it's necessary and we've done it before. And our cause continues to be noble to put people in homes, provide clean and safe, affordable rental housing around the country. There will always be a need for it. It will not be offshored. <laughs> of course, segments of the, of the back office work might be, but that's all at the behest of, of uh, the lenders and the servicers. And we will always need a reliable um, party to guide people through home ownership and financing. And, and when they get in trouble on the servicing side too, the, the loss mitigation, the progress we've made in loss mitigation has been just really compelling. And while a lot of that progress was accelerated because of a global pandemic, we'll take what we learned from that and apply it to economic dislocations like we believe we'll have in 2023 with higher unemployment. And and we will keep more people in homes than we would have had we not been through that experience. So I'm an eternal optimist and I am a I am a big believer in what this industry does. And I know that after a rough patch for part of 2023, we'll be prospering again. Thanks for that good word. And thanks for sitting down with us and just going through so much, Bob. Great to have you on and hope to have you on again in the future. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks again for having me. have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW+, membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to HousingWire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.